Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord God, we thank you so much for this time this morning. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear what it is that you have for us today and have already prepared in your word, as Dan prayed, uh, that nothing is a surprise to you. The things that come out of my mouth today are not a surprise to you, Lord, sometimes to me, Lord, but not to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you take this time and that uh, you would speak directly to each one of us individually as you know us, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are going to be going through the book of Ephesians, um, and we'll probably get to it today, (laughs) but I never want to assume that everybody knows everything about what we're talking about, and so I just want to hit a couple of high points here about who who wrote this and, and why and who this is to and all that stuff. So this is the letter, Paul's letter to the church in, in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was a very, very special church to Paul. But who was Paul? Um, in case you don't know, Paul was a Pharisee um, who uh, at the time of Christ was so zealous for the word of God and, and that he was actually going out um, and, and, and arresting those who were at the time called the followers of the way. At the time of Paul, um, and before uh, the, a time in Antioch, Christians weren't called Christians. They were called something other. And oftentimes it was followers of the way, which is pretty neat, actually, because Jesus identified himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And so the, the, those who were following him were called followers of the way. And so Paul was very zealous um, about protecting the word of God and God uh, himself. And so he was very involved in going out and arresting those who were followers of the way. We actually read about him being present when Stephen, who was giving his witness before um, the council, was stoned to death. And, and Paul was there at that time, um, consenting to his death and, and holding everyone's coat, apparently. Um, so later on, we see Saul getting a letter. And, and if, if I go back and forth at this point between Saul and Paul, um, it's because they're both his name. Paul was his Hebrew name. Saul was his Greek name. Um, and so it wasn't like he was Saul and then he became converted and, and then it's Paul, although later on he does mostly go with Paul because that was his Hebrew name. Um, at one point, he gets a letter from the council that was like authority to go out and arrest the, the followers of the way. And he zealously went about this work. Um, he was on the road to Damascus going to arrest believers when he met Jesus, or um, more specifically, Jesus met him on the road, and an ironic twist of fate arrested Paul um, into the faith of Jesus Christ. And if you, uh, you can read that in Acts, where he, he shines a light so bright from heaven that it knocks Paul to the ground. Um, and from that point on, pretty much, Paul is a convert to a follower of Jesus Christ, a follower of the way. And you know, the thing about Paul was he was a zealot before. The, uh, he was zealous for protecting the word of God. He did not change. His focus was now on Jesus, but he remained zealous for Jesus from that point forward. Yeah. Now, what we see is that Paul then goes on what we've called 
um, what the church throughout history has called the missionary journeys of Paul. The first missionary journey of Paul, the second missionary journey. In fact, in my Bible, I have maps, and each map shows the journey, and each map is labeled first journey, first missionary journey of Paul, second missionary journey of Paul. But that's what we call it, I guess, because we feel like we've got to kind of label it or identify it. But Paul would not have called it that. Paul wouldn't have said, well, see you guys later. I'm headed out on to my third missionary journey. Paul would say, I believe, I'm just going wherever God tells me to go. And I'm just saying the things that he tells me to say to whomever it is he tells me to say it to. Now, when you think about it like that, you think, and can understand that every believer is actually on a missionary journey. We are to go wherever God calls us to go. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to be sent overseas to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. Maybe, maybe some of you will. Maybe some of you are uh, or have. But every believer in Jesus Christ is sent on a missionary journey, meaning we go where God tells us to go. And maybe it's to our neighbor. Maybe it's to the office down the hall. Maybe it's to the teacher's lounge. Maybe it's to the stranger on the street or a person in the store. We are to say the things that he tells us to say. Are you okay? You look stressed. Can I pray for you? And we're to say it to whomever he places in our path to say it to. Your neighbor the person in front of you in line, the person that you work with, another student, um, your brother, your sister, your lifelong friend. We are to say the things that he has called us to say to whom he's called us to say them to. Well, I get that, Pastor, but Paul was unique. (laughs) Paul was unique. But Paul wasn't unique because he had a missionary call on his life. He was unique because he was obedient to it. We can all be unique in the same way that Paul was unique, by being obedient to the call to go say to whom God directs us to. I love that about Paul. Well, Paul writes this letter to the Ephesian church. So... Who was the Ephesian church? How did they even get started? I mean, this is like the first century. Like, how did this church get started at all? Well, here's what happened. Paul, on his second missionary journey, (laughs) swings around to Corinth. Now, while he's in Corinth, he meets this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers, and so was Paul. Um, and so they, that's how they kind of met. Now, Achilles and Priscilla, they were expelled from Rome because they were believers, and all the believers were expelled at that time. And so they found themselves in Corinth, and they met up with Paul, and those, they, as a team, they decided to go over to Ephesus. And when they got to Ephesus, Paul, as it was his practice, went into the synagogue and started to um, preach to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were, in, they were really interested to hear. And they asked Paul at that time, could you stay a little bit longer? But Paul had a plan and he was trying to get back to Jerusalem and said, no, I have to leave, but I'm going to leave you with Aquila and Priscilla, which he did. And he moved on. Now, right around that same time, there was another guy that came in. Um, his name was Apollos. 
And it says in the Bible that Apollos was uh, an eloquent speaker and mighty in the scripture. And so he began to also teach in Corinth, only he didn't have all of the information. And we learn later that Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and filled him in on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, which he then took with him and he went on to Corinth. Well, right around that same time, Paul comes back into Ephesus and he meets up with about 12 disciples uh, or or followers at that point in uh, Ephesus. And he begins to talk to them about what they'd learned and they didn't really know about the Holy Spirit. And so he shares with them about the Holy Spirit um, and he baptizes them. And then Paul goes into the synagogue again and he begins to preach the gospel. Now, Some were happy that he was there, but others in the synagogue in Ephesus were not thrilled that Paul was there. And so they said, we want you to leave. And so Paul said, okay. Now he didn't leave the city. He went in and he started up, uh, he he must have kind of gotten together with Aquila and Priscilla and started making tents. I just picture Paul like sewing sewing tents because that's what they did. during the day, but at that lunchtime break, he found a location called the School of Tyrannus that was available for him to be able to use to preach the gospel. So basically how it would work is the School of Tyrannus would meet from the morning until lunch, and then they'd take a break, and then they would come back in and go after lunch until the late afternoon. But in that middle of the day period, it was available to Paul to go in and use that space to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what he did for about two years. Now, this is the incredible part because the first time that we really see Paul, not just as a church planter, but stay and act in the role of pastor of this fledgling church in Ephesus, meeting at the school of Tyrannus during the day. And this church began to just explode. People were hearing the gospel of Jesus. They were meeting Jesus in that sense, and they were just falling in love. They were crazy about Jesus. So much so that it says that they began to bring their very prized possessions, which were these very expensive books of spells and pagan rituals and things, and they were bringing them and they were just burning them in this big fire. Um, and it even says that, you know, and, and the total sum of the books that were burned were this, and it was a large amount of money. And so we know that these were, these were costly books. These were things that were dear to them until they met Jesus. And then they were like, we don't even need any of this stuff. And they were burning it up. Now, the other thing that they weren't doing was they weren't buying idol statues anymore. And that caused a big stir in Ephesus because Ephesus was the place where there was a big temple to the goddess Diana. Um, And there were many who were there who would make these little silver statues of Diana and they would sell them. They were silversmiths. And so there was this one particular silversmith that mentions in Acts, his name is Demetrius. And Demetrius got all the other silversmiths together and he was like, look at this guy is teaching them that they don't need to worship Diana anymore. And so nobody's buying our statues anymore. And our business is going right down the drain. We need to get rid of this guy. Oh, and by the way, he's teaching them that they can just worship God. Now, the the soul worship of God and the... the, um, leaving of worshiping Diana was secondary to Demetrius. He was more concerned about money. So there's this big uprising that happens in Ephesus right around this time where he gets all these people together and they go into this like big Colosseum and they're, and, uh, if they're just like um, chanting like praise to Diana, praise to Diana. And they don't really even, most of the people don't even know really what's going on. 
Well, thankfully, the city clerk of the city of Ephesus comes in and he says, listen, um, we're in danger right now of Rome coming in and just like taking over. So can you please stop the, the tumult, um, to which they did, basically. And I, I'm giving you a very high-level story. Uh, uh, no details, really. Just go in and read it later for yourself. But this is basically what happens. You've got this amazing church now that's been started in Ephesus by Paul because they've all met Jesus, and they are crazy about Jesus because he've learned that Jesus is crazy about them. And that's a lot of what he's going to write about today. Um, so... At this, about this time, Paul decides it's time for him to move on. Later on, he's going to say it's been about three years total of him being there. He's going to move on. But on his, um, at some point in his third journey, he swings back around. And he lands in the city of Miletus, which is just down the coast from Ephesus. He doesn't actually go into Ephesus. He goes into Miletus, and it says that he calls together the elders of the church. So we know that there now he's established a church with elders that's functioning there. And he calls them back together, and he gives them kind of a, a farewell message. He knows at this point that he's not going to see them ever again. And so I'm just going to read to you. He gives them this like farewell message it's in Acts 20, verse 28 and through 32. Just listen along with me. It says, therefore, this is Paul speaking to them. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, the shepherd of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Remember that. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking in perverse things to draw away the disciples themselves. Therefore, watch and remember. Oh, no, just 30. He says in 32, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And it basically says they all hugged Paul. They, they fell on his neck. <laughs> That's what I always imagine. They fell on his neck, they cried, and they, because they realized this was the last time they were going to see their precious pastor, um, and off he goes, and, and again, he's not to be seen again. Now, now, 10 years later, when Paul is in his fourth missionary journey, which is actually just him as a prisoner of Rome being taken to see Caesar, he ends up in what we would call house arrest. Like he's, he is a prisoner of Rome, but he's in his own rented house where he writes several letters. This one is one of those letters that he writes while he's a, a prisoner of Rome. And actually what Paul will, as we read through um, this book of Ephesians, we'll see that Paul will actually refer to himself as a prisoner, but not as a prisoner of Rome. He'll say a prisoner of Christ or a prisoner of the Holy Spirit because he says, look, the reason that I'm a prisoner is because I will not stop preaching Jesus Christ. Right? That is Paul. That's who he's writing to. That's why he's writing. He's actually writing this letter. The, the, the letter of Ephesians is an amazing letter. Okay? It's different than Paul's other letters. Most of Paul's letters are um, corrective in nature, right? Like there's something bad that was going on, and so he writes them to correct the behavior or the understanding or the misunderstanding. Ephesians is... Like the letter I think Jude wanted to write. When Jude says, remember, he says, look, I intended to write to you a letter about our common salvation, but I have to write to you about this thing, this problem that's going on. 
I think Ephesians is more like the letter that Jude wanted to write, where he's just talking about this is how much Jesus loves you and what the Father did through him. You have to get this. In fact, the first three chapters of Ephesians is all about the amazing things that God did for us. The second half of the book of Ephesians, four through six, is then what our response should be in light of what God has done for us. That's what we're going to be looking at. So, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Okay. I do like this. I mean, it's like Paul is saying, you know me. I was with you for a while. I know it's been a while, but you know me. He says, I am an apostle by the will of God. God chose me for this role. I'm apostle. You remember when Judas um, betrayed Jesus and then ran out and then like killed himself? Um, well, apparently the other 11 uh, apostles were like, well, we got to have 12. <laughs> Clearly 12 is the number we have to have. So we have to replace them. And here's what we'll do. We'll just draw straws. And just a couple of guys who are good candidates will get the straws out and they'll pick one. And whoever has the short straw, that's the new disciple. And it was... Matthias. I actually think that God was like, no, it's Paul. <laughs> Paul is the one that I've picked to replace uh, Judas as my apostle. And I, you know, and I met him on the road and I've, I've groomed him for all of this and I've taught him through, directly through the Holy Spirit. And I think Paul recognizes that and says, Paul, I'm an apostle by the will of God. I look... I have to backtrack just for a second here. Now, Paul writes this letter to them, and he's going to say, you know what? You, you are on fire for Jesus. You were crazy about Jesus when I was there. And he's not correcting them at this point. But years after, John, years after Paul writes this letter, John writes about the church or to the church in Ephesus also. In fact, when John was on the island of Patmos, he was like banished there as punishment, he gets a vision from God and he writes what we know as the book of Revelation. All right, and in the book of Revelation, in chapter two, he is writing uh, under the influence of and the direction of the Holy Spirit to the seven churches. And the very first church that he writes to is Ephesus. So this is what he says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I just realized we're in Revelation. So anybody who thought that we were going to do that next, here you go. He says of uh, Ephesus, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have per persevered and have patience and I have labored for and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. The, in, the church in Ephesus came out of a crazy love for Jesus. And everything they did, bringing in, no one, no one said to them, bring your books, bring your idols, burn them because you don't need them because you've got the love of Jesus. They understood it. They were crazy about Jesus and everything they did came. But years after that time, they had gotten to a place where they were still doing all of the good work, but they were doing it 
from some other place because Jesus says to John, who writes down, you've left your first love. Jesus, your first love, is no longer your motivation for the works that you're doing. That is why I love this letter. I love this letter, Ephesians, because he's going to say, I'm going to remind you how much you're loved, how much you are loved, and hopefully that will show you how you live your day-to-day. Paul says this in the first verse, to the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ. The word saints, it literally means set apart by God. Set apart by God, that's what it means. Um, Now, throughout history, there have been those who have taken that idea and the word saints and said, okay, saints are those who are set apart by God. So in order to help us understand who that is, we're going to attach a bunch of criteria to that so that you have to fulfill these criteria in order to become considered a saint, then, we, then we'll know. Um, and so there's uh, some rules and, and some, some critique of lifestyle and some miracles that have to happen along, along the way. Um, strangely enough, the miracles all have to be completed after the person is dead. Um, and so then they would go in and they would observe that person's life and they would say, oh, the, this person lived an exemplary life. They've been able to do um, these particular miracles. And so this person now is a saint. And it's, it's kind of called the canonization. Canon, somebody? Yeah, you got it. What God says is, what sets you apart is you're a follower of my son, Jesus Christ. That makes you a saint. That makes you a saint. So um, any of you who are here who've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a saint. Saint Becky. Saint Jeff. (laughs) Saint Steve. (laughs) I said that to somebody this morning. I was like, Saint Denise. And she's like, ooh. And I was like, yes, I get it. I I understand that because we think, no, don't call me a saint because I'm not good. Well, no, you're not. But we're not, he doesn't consider us saints because we're good. Considers us saints because we're saved. Not because we're good. You're not good. This says also to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Jesus Christ. So two things. In some of the original manuscripts of this letter, the word Ephesus is actually blank. Now, not all of them, but in some, it's left blank. And you know the word here that says, and faithful in Jesus Christ, is also often translated as also, not just and. So it would be to the saints, those who believe in Christ, who, uh, who are in blank, also faithful in Christ Jesus. And the understanding is that it was written in such a way so that this letter could be used in other churches as well, as long as there were faithful followers of Christ there, that they could say to the saints, the followers of Christ in Calvary Chapel, Naples, and also faithful in Christ Jesus. And so the idea is that everything from this point on in this letter could be applied directly to you if you are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's like, imagine getting that letter and it just says, you know, you're reading it from Paul and it says, insert your church's name here or insert your name here instead of saying Ephesus. 
He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We have talked about this as kind of a very typical greeting for Paul. Grace and peace. Grace is the Greek greeting. Peace is the Jewish greeting. Um, like grace would be something if you were a Gentile and you bumped into a friend and you would say, oh, grace to you. And peace is a typical Jewish greeting of shalom. And so he's saying, I know in this church, who's ever going to read this letter, I know that I've got Gentiles and I know I've got Jews, so I'm greeting you both. But it's deeper than that because Paul will always put grace before peace in his greetings. And that is because he understands, and so should we, that it is only when you first understand God's grace that you can receive God's peace. God's grace says you didn't deserve this. You don't deserve any of this, but I'm giving it to you anyway. And that is what gives us peace. In fact, Jesus would say, my peace I give to you, not like the world gives. That means I'm giving you my peace. It's greater than the world's peace, and I give it to you differently than the world gives it to you. How does the world give peace? I'm going to give my peace to you, but if you tick me off, I'm taking it back again. It's my peace. And God says, I'm giving you my peace, not like the world gives. And that's how he starts his letter, grace and peace. He also says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I really do like the fact that Paul uses the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those have significant meaning. It's, it's, it, it's not like Smokey the Bear. <laughs> um, it, it, it's, it is his designation, um, but it's not his name. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is his position. He is the Lord. Jesus is his name. Um, that's his Greek name. In Hebrew, his name is Yehoshua, meaning the Lord who saves. Believe it or not, that is what Jesus' name means, the Lord who saves. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, Mashiach, which means the one anointed by God. So it's the Lord, Yehoshua, the one who was anointed by God, the deliverer. Now, when the word Messiah got translated into Greek, so it's Christ, it seems like it started to lose a little bit of its implied power because it's so easy. There are so many people, and I hear this all the time, it seems to be a favorite curse word of so many people. Well, something happens, somebody cuts them off, or um, they drop a pass, and you hear, Jesus Christ, right? Well, what if the word Christ was out of the vocabulary and they actually had to use the Hebrew word Messiah? All of a sudden now they're saying, Jesus, Messiah, and you're like, right on! <laughs> it changes it all of a sudden. I did have a friend up in New York who every time someone would swear and they would say, Jesus Christ, she'd say, you praise him! <laughs> and people thought she was crazy. <laughs> Jesus the Messiah. Right on. <laughs> blessed be, in verse 3, blessed be the God our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father, in, in um, the original Greek language it is, worthy of praise is God the Father. Worthy of praise. 
He says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? Obviously, health, wealth, and happiness. No, sorry. Those are not heavenly, those are not spiritual blessings. Health, wealth, and happiness are the American dream. No, but not necessarily a spiritual blessings. Now, maybe you are blessed with health, wealth, and happiness. Good for you. Enjoy that. Maybe you've only got one of them three. Maybe you're healthy, but you're poor. <laughs> but what are the spiritual blessings that he's talking about? Well, Paul is so good to actually go through the next several verses and tell you what they are. Now, he doesn't say this is spiritual blessing number one. This is spiritual blessing number two. What we're going to see is knowledge, wisdom, understanding, guidance. Those are the spiritual blessings that God gives us. He never promises us health or wealth or happiness ever. He doesn't promise us this side of heaven. He doesn't promise any of that. To some of you, he has given those things, but he's not promising those to anyone. He's talking about spiritual blessings. We'll see those as we go. Now, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Okay. This is one of the verses that causes people consternation. Denominations have split. Churches have been formed around this understanding that, well, God chose us kind of a thing. The reason why this comes up so often is because we, as people, when we read this, put the emphasis on us. God chose us before the foundations of the world. And we think, oh, that's amazing. God chose us. Now, when you start thinking that, you also start thinking, well, if he chose me, did he not choose someone else? And then if he didn't choose someone else, what kind of a loving God wouldn't choose somebody without their control? And this is where we start to see this weird, crazy split. The, why do we do that? Well, because there's something in the human heart that still, no matter how good we think we are, and maybe you know, how closely we're walking to Jesus, there's still a little bit of something in us that wants to maybe just exalt ourselves or elevate ourselves just a little bit over our neighbor. We can say, well, this says he chose me. I don't know if he chose you. Maybe he didn't choose, because if he's choosing, it's not like, um, you know, he's, he, if he's choosing, he's got to choose somebody and not choose somebody else. And that's why we do, we put the emphasis on he chose us. But I think what God is saying here is, no, the emphasis is on chose, not us. So look at it. Just as he chose us before the foundations of the world, that means that we weren't thrust upon him. He wasn't forced to take us. He chose us. Before the foundations of the world. You know what that means? It means that he didn't choose you because you're amazing. He didn't choose you because you're awesome. He didn't choose you because of you at all. Because this says it was before the foundations of the world were formed. Before any of you were even created at all, he chose us before the foundations of the world. Not between us, he chose us. Now, Paul's going to actually go on with this understanding when he talks about adoption in the next 
verse. But before we get there, there's this other little part that I want you to see where it says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so he chose us, but we are called to walk in holiness. As we are supposed to be dedicating our lives to say, well, I'm going to serve God. I want to be conformed into the image of Christ. But there's another part, and maybe this isn't exactly what this is saying, but I think God kind of brought this to my mind, which is really important, is that when we stand before a holy God, Jesus stands before us, and God sees us through Christ. So we are perfect in that. Now, if you ask Jesus to step aside and say, I got this on my own, Jesus. I could stand before a holy, perfect God. I don't need him to see me through you. Now, all of a sudden, he's going to see every flaw, every imperfection, every sin. When Jesus steps in, he's seeing you through Jesus. You're blameless and holy because he sees you through Christ. But if you're, gonna, if you're saying, I don't need Jesus. I can stand before God in my own power, my own righteousness. I'm going to tell you, you can't. You can't do it. Paul goes on with this illustration of being chosen or that he chose us and he uses this example of adoption. So in verse 5 it says, having predestined us. And don't, don't get hung up on predestined. It means before seeing. Um, that's a very literal Greek. Before seeing, he... Um, chose us for adoption as sons of Jesus sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the, his good pleasure and his will. Uh, here's how this illustration works. Some people will end up with children that they didn't plan on having. You know what I'm talking about? Um, sometimes people will say to me in describing themselves and their siblings and they'll say, oh, well, my siblings are all 10 years older than me. I wasn't planned. I was like, I was an accident. That doesn't mean that your parents don't love you. It just means that you weren't planned. They didn't choose to have you. It was an accident. The reason why Paul uses adoption as an example to further understand that God chose you is because nobody ends up with an adopted child by accident. You choose to adopt you choose to adopt a child. I didn't all of a sudden end up with chi in China, somebody handing me a baby and be like, what, what's all this about? <laughs> there have been moments <laughs> where I might have questioned the choice. <laughs> and it wasn't that, you know, we had like a big book of options that I flipped through and I was like, oh, I want this one. No, the choice was at the beginning where we chose adoption as a way of receiving a child. Nobody gets an adopted child by accident. You choose adoption. And that's why Paul uses this example to remind you, it's not the emphasis of, you know, God chose us. It's God chose us like one who chooses adoption. At this time, adoption is actually similar to what it is now. When someone was adopted, they were then completely considered a child of the one who adopted them. Every single inheritance or every right that went with a regular biological child was extended to the adopted child, just like now. I have one adopted and I have one biological. Um, I chose both of those processes. <laughs> um, now, I don't consider one more my child than the other. Um, 
they're both mine. They're both in my will, equal parts, 50-50. Now, I have the option to change that if I want. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to. So it's very important that you see that adoption was, a, you choose to adopt. That's why he's saying that God chose you. I actually do really like that. I like that idea because it wasn't like God was like, fine, give me those. I'll take those. <laughs> no, what does it say? Look at this. It says in verse 5 about that it was according to his good pleasure of his will. Do you know what good pleasure of his will means? If you, if you look that up, it means he was delighted to do it. He was delighted to choose us. It made him so happy. He says in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In verse 7, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Sometimes, as much as I like the New King James Version, the language gets a little flowery. So... <laughs> Um, I'm going to read to you verse 7 in the New Living Translation because it says this. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Let me read it again. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. So first of all, we were purchased by the blood of Jesus. Now, I'm sure you understand that he's not literally saying that somehow the blood dripped on us from Jesus and that's what saved us. That's not it. It's not like you could go to Jerusalem, find the place of the crucifixion, dig down into the ground, scrape off some of the dried blood of Jesus from the rocks that are there, and then carry that around and, and, and sprinkle that on people and they're saved. It doesn't mean that. Uh, if it did, that would mean that all the soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross and the blood sprayed up and got on them, that they would have also been saved. It doesn't mean that. You know that when it says saved by the blood of Jesus, that means that it was his sacrifice, his death on the cross, for our sakes, that we are saved. That's, remember, they would, they would have to, God instituted from the very beginning the, the sacrifice of an innocent lamb that was the covering for their sin. And, you know, a lamb could only be so perfect. Um, but when Jesus came, he was born without sin. He was sinless in his life. He was able to be this perfect sacrifice that would happen once and forever, not over and over and over again. And that's the blood that we are saved by. We've been redeemed by his blood. Not literally his blood, but the sacrifice that was represented by his spilt blood. That is what he's saying right there. Now also notice that this verse says that he, we were saved by the, the blood of his son and he forgave our sins. Do you see what that says, he forgave our sins? It doesn't say that he's waiting to forgive your sins. It says that he forgave them already. The question is, do you believe that? Jesus would say in John chapter 11, I'm the, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe that, you will live forever. Then he literally says to them, do you believe it? Do you believe? It isn't like Jesus is saying, I'm waiting to forgive your sins. You just have to ask me. He's saying, I already forgave your sins. Do you believe that? That's where you have to be at. Do I believe it? 
or do I not? Because if you say no, what you're saying is, no, I don't need a savior to forgive me. I'm not a sinner. I don't need that. And what you do by saying that is you call God a liar. Remember in 1 John, it says, if anyone says they're without sin, they are a liar and the truth is not in them. And, and really what you're doing is you're saying the witness of the Holy Spirit that says that Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood so that he could forgive my sins. And I believe that if you reject the witness of the Holy Spirit, we call that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it is the only <clears throat> unforgivable sin that the Bible talks about. But it is only unforgivable up, you know, if you die in that place. If you die in the rejection of the Holy Spirit's witness of Jesus Christ, then there is no hope for heaven for you beyond that point. But up until your very last breath, there is always hope of forgiveness or accepting or believing in the forgiveness that Jesus died for your sins. But he did it once and it was done then. In verse 8, it says that he has showered his kindness on us. Again, this is an NLT. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Guess what that is? Spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessing that he was talking about. But I love the imagery of him showering his kindness on us. Um, how many of you are here in the summertime? Okay. You know in the summertime, it sometimes rains. And by sometimes I mean every single day. At 2.45 in the afternoon. <laughs> and it is what I would call a shower. I mean, it's a deluge, really. But it's a shower of rain so that when you're in your car and you're trying to get home and it's pouring rain, to get from your car to your house, for me, it's like this distance right here to the wall. That's how close it is from my car to the door. In a shower, I can't get from here to there without being soaked head to toe, completely wet right to the skin. That's what this image is. Showers his kindness on you. That you are soaked head to toe to the skin with his kindness. Spiritual blessing. Oh, man, does he love us so much. So much. Because you're amazing, right? Not awesome. All right, 9, 10, and 11, let's read along. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him, uh, according to the, whose works all things according to the counsel of his will. Right? <laughs> what? <laughs> Again, verse 9. God has now, this is just, just listen now. God has revealed to us his, mystery, his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. That says God has a plan, and guess what he's doing? He's going to reveal it to you. Right? So, what's the plan? Well, it says in the next verse, and this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Hallelujah. Yes. Yeah. 
That's the plan. At the right time. When is that time? Now. No. It didn't work at 9 o'clock either. He says, at the right time, which means, God says, at the time that I determine will be the time. We don't know it. Paul didn't know it. John didn't know it. Nobody knows it. But God has allowed every generation to believe it's in their lifetime that is the time. Why would God do that? Because he wants all of us to live in the expectation of that time being within our lifetime so that we live in a place of expectation. So we say, you know what? I don't know how much time we got left. So I, better, I better go and do and say what God has called me to go and do and say because it could be tomorrow. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> I, I don't know what it's going to be like. I'm, I'm, this is my stance. So as soon as it happens, I'm doing this. I've, I've already picked my pose. <laughs> we will meet him in the air, it says. That will be an amazing day. You know, and you know what? I'm, uh, maybe we won't see it in our lifetime, although I think we will. Um, but there's only two options for me. And if you're a believer, there's only two options. He will either call you home or he will come and get you. It's only those two. Those are the only two. He's going to call you home or come and get you. If it's the call you home part... I just hope it doesn't hurt. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's just not painful. Do you think there's going to be animals in heaven? Side note. Side note. Definitely dogs. I don't know about cats. <laughs> Certainly not goats. There's not going to be any goats in heaven with them square pupils. I don't get that at all. Somebody this morning said, well, I'm sad because we're not going to be able to be together in heaven because I love cats. And I was like, well, I can come and visit you, I guess. Maybe they'll be over there. <laughs> I said, you know what? Actually, what I think is it will look like a cat to you, but it will look like a dog to me. And then we'll all be happy. It's heaven. They'd be like, do you like my cat? And I was like, no, but you have a lovely dog. Verse 11, it says, furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance and makes everything work out according to his plan. That should give you incredibly great comfort to know that it says that everything will work out according to his plan. God has a plan. He has had a plan from the beginning. Jesus is not plan B. Jesus was from the beginning. We know that. We know he was from the beginning. It wasn't as if God said, oh, I've got a plan, and he's watching it all take place, and he's like, oh, they keep messing it up. Jesus, come here. You're going to have to go down. Sorry, you're going to have to die a horrible, torturous death in order to redeem these people because they can't follow my plan. Jesus was the plan from the beginning, and he says that I will see it through all the way to the end. No matter how dark it seems to get, and gang, it can seem very dark. If you spend a lot of time watching the news, reading on the internet, all the terrible things that are going on, you could start to begin to think that, man, maybe it seems a little bit like God's losing some ground here. Like, you know, what's going on? And, you know, the thing is, God says, oh, yeah, well, I got a plan. And I will see my plan through no matter what. I will see it through. So I'm like, okay, all right. 
I can rest in that. I can rest in the fact that God has a plan. And verse 12, it says in, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also believed, and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. First of all, I don't know if Paul is saying we heard it first, meaning we, the Jews, who heard it first, because that's who the word, the gospel first came to, and then you, the Gentiles, heard it also and believed, or if he's saying uh, we, the apostles of Jesus Christ, heard it first, and then we passed it on to everybody else. I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you know, I don't know, but it's one of those probably. But what's most important in this verse is he is saying that when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Paul's very clever. Um, Ephesus is a port city. Um, and so ships were coming in and out of there with merchandise that were purchased either by someone in Ephesus or someone else that was being shipped out. Now, what the master would do is he would send down his, his uh, assistant and they would check out all of the merchandise that he would bought. They would melt wax on it and then they would put his seal on it so that everybody that looked at that could see that it was sealed with the seal of the master and they knew exactly who it belonged to. That's what he's saying. If you are a believer in Jesus, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit so that everyone knows who I belong to. Now, the other part of it is if you were someone who was, you know, a sneaky thief and you were going in to steal merchandise and snatch it away, you would look at that and say, oh, that's got the seal of this master. I'm not touching that. And in fact, Jesus would later say, no one snatches you away. You've been sealed you have the seal of the master. Then what he's going to say is that when that merchandise arrived in the city in which the master lived, they would look at that and they would say, oh, okay, this is his. And it would be then delivered to him and it was recognized because it had the seal. And that's what it says. It's like, until the he says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? He's saying you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You cannot be snatched away until the day of redemption. Is basically talking about until your final day, either your final day here because he's taking you home or he calls us all home. We're identified as the possession of the master sealed by the Holy Spirit. Unable to be stolen or snatched away. Therefore, he says, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love of all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That is a pastor's heart right there for his church. I thank uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the, spiritual, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. What's that? Spiritual blessing. Right there again. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of the inheritance in the saints. He says, I pray that your hearts would be flooded with light so that you can see the truth of salvation. I pray that your heart would be flooded with light I heard somebody say this week that a lamp will light the path that you're supposed to take 
but at the same time, it can also cast shadows. The difference is, if I look and fix my eyes on the path that's lit before me, I will know which way to go. But if I get distracted looking for truth in the shadows, the secret things that can't be clearly seen, then I can go off path and end up getting tripped up on the obstacles that I can't even see because they're in the shadow. And he says, I pray that your hearts would be filled with light so that you will stay on the path of salvation that's been laid out before you. Flooded with light. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his mighty power? Verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come. He says here and he points out that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in the position of all authority. In fact, Jesus will say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There is some kind of a weird misunderstanding in the world today that like the devil is the equal opposite of Jesus. They're like battling it out somehow. And that cannot be further from the truth. It says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father with all authority being given to him. He is not an equal opposite of Satan. If you want an equal opposite of Satan, it probably is someone more like Michael the Archangel. But it is not Jesus. Jesus is in authority, and then he breaks it down, and he says right here, above all principality and power and might and dominion is the Bible's way of saying any earthly leaders and any spiritual leaders, and I don't mean like, you know, pastors and things. I mean like um, demons, the, the forces of Satan that are also at work in this world in the dimension that we can't see. He says, Jesus is the head of all of that, of all of it. And not just right now, he says, but he says in this age, but in also the age to come. That means forever. He is in authority and in power over everyone now and forever. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So who is the head of the church? Jesus. Is there any question? No, not at all. Jesus is the head of the church. This is an amazing book. You guys, we're in for a treat, let me tell you. The message Paul is saying is, God chose you because he loves you. Sit with that this week. Be reminded of that this week, that you are so loved. Not because you're awesome. Not because you did even a little good. It was done before the foundations of the world were laid. He chose you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for this morning and for this word. I look so forward to the rest of this book of Ephesians and what you have to tell us. Lord, as we continue to learn of all of the amazing things that you've done before we even get to our response to that, Lord. I pray that you would 
Do as Paul writes here, that you would make things clear to us, that you would flood our hearts with light. Lord, that you would shower us with kindness as you have never stopped doing, Lord. Oh, I pray that we would recognize it, Lord. I pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on the illuminated path rather than be distracted into the shadows to the left or to the right, hiding the hidden things, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. Thank you. In your name we pray, amen.